everyone. Welcome to Rising. We've got another great show for you today. Brianna, let's get right into it, shall we? Yeah, we shall. Police have shared new details about the identity of the suspect in the Covenant school shooting in Nashville. 28-year-old Audrey Hale was under the care of a doctor for a, quote, emotional disorder and legally purchased at least seven firearms from five different gun stores. Three were used in Monday's shooting. Now, law enforcement had not been, previ been previously made aware of Hale's treatment. However, Nashville police said yesterday their parents felt that they should not own weapons. Fox News' Tucker Carlson covered the shooting last night. Uh, he's facing flack online after saying that transgenderism is the enemy of Christianity. Let's watch. Why are some trans people so angry, and why do they seem to be mad specifically at traditional Christians? We can't think of any trans person who's ever been murdered by a pastor. As far as we know, that has never happened. So it's not an actual threat of violence from Christians that's inspiring some trans people to buy AR-15s. No, it's, it's got to be more fundamental than that, and it is. The trans movement is the mirror image of Christianity, and therefore its natural enemy. In Christianity, the price of admission is admitting that you're not God. Christians openly concede that they have no real power over anything, and for that matter, very little personal virtue. They will tell you to your face that they are sinful and helpless and basically absurd. They're not embarrassed about any of this. They brag about it. That saved a wretch like me, goes the most famous Christian hymn ever written in English. The trans movement takes the opposite view. Trans ideology claims dominion over nature itself. We can change the identity we were born with, they will tell you with wild-eyed certainty. Christians can never agree with this statement because these are powers they believe God alone possesses. I mean, this was an interesting take. I, I certainly would never want to indict all religious people or all, or, or all Catholic people for something that one cohort of folks did. But if we're going to go down that route, if you say someone does something and this is endemic to their ideology, why would you want to open that door when it's estimated that you know, 216,000 children were molested by Catholic priests between 1950 and, and 2020? You know, and whereas there are at best three trans people in the history of trans people that we're really talking about here in terms of mass shootings who have ever perpetrated something like this. Sure. I, I, I'm seeing a lot of, I think, conservatives succumbing to the, um, to the exact thing they criticize when it's a white male shooter or a right-wing shooter where they say, you know, don't, don't make this about a group. This is, no one is responsible for this but the person who did it. Yeah. That's often a, a conservative and also a libertarian response uh, because we believe in individual rights and individual accountability. That's often a response to what the mainstream media is saying in cases of shooting. Yeah, I, I think that should be how we treat these scenarios, whether the shooter is a white male Christian or a Trump supporter or black or uh, an Islamist or a transgender person. Like, yeah. we, the, the responsibility is that person's actions. No, no one has ever wronged you to, to a degree where you are justified in killing random people, children. Certainly. So we should, we should, it is a good impulse to blame no one but the person who actually pulls the trigger. It's a good impulse in all those other instances, and it would be a good impulse here. Yeah, I, I'm seeing a, a lot from, um, uh, you know, various uh, kind of, uh, people who are critical of, of aspects of transgender activism or the transgender movement, um, which, you know, I, I think you can, uh, you can criticize some, 
tactics or the, you know what is uh, often I've I've come into conflict with people who are even though I, I support transgender people's rights uh, about you know what you're expected to say or what the rules should be for how you're supposed to address people I want to address people however you know they want me to address them but you know what you're going to obligate other people to do. Um, so I'm seeing people who have those criticisms, but then it's like, aha, now there, there's a trans killer in this case, so we can graft that mm -hmm. onto yeah. some pensions for violence. Use an excuse kind of to disrespect yeah, which is them. Not, which is just not, uh, not right. I, I was interested by the whole, uh, you know, the comment, the parents clearly did not want this person yes. to have access to guns. So th that suggests that they knew the individual was disturbed, um, had a mental health track record, was able to purchase guns anyway. Uh, I mean, the only thing I really want to say about that is there is a, a law, a provision that I, I don't know that they have it here. They probably don't, but that uh, that some states have, that some on the right have been supportive of. You know, the red flag mm -hmm. law, where you can you can get a, a basically a restraining order against someone you know to prevent them from being able to have firearms based on uh, mental illness. Tennessee has no red flag laws, yeah, and so. it, it apparently the mother was an advocate for gun control in some uh, social media posts that people turned up. And if it was the case that she was aware of you know her child's mental illness mm -hmm. and was aware that their child was pursuing gun ownership and was trying to warn and there was no mechanism to warn that just really compounds this tragedy. One other thing about the Tucker segment I wouldn't notice that I saw some folks pointing out that when Dylan Roof shot up at Charles, uh, the Charleston church, that wasn't framed as a, an attack on Christianity. Of course, that was a, a black church that he targeted and was frankly welcomed into this, the session, welcomed into the mm -hmm. um, uh, that, that day's sermon and invited very warmly by church members before he chose to murder so many people there. And it is interesting to see why, to, to examine why an attack on Christians in that instance wouldn't be framed as a, you know, white male attack on Christianity, whereas this is being framed as a trans attack, a, attack on Christianity and what the dynamics are at, at play there. Mm -hmm. uh, but meanwhile, in an Instagram video, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez hit out at critics like Tucker Carlson, accusing them of projecting their ill intentions onto trans people. Let's watch that. The first time I was ever hit on by a grown man, I was about 13 or 14 years old. I still had braces in my teeth and if you ask a lot of women about the first time that they had encountered something like that, they will often say 11, 12, 13, 14 years old. When I was in my early 20s and I worked as a waitress um, on an outdoor cafe, there was a man that would park on the side of the street and we realized that he was pleasuring himself to the waitresses that were going back and forth on the sidewalk. I can't tell you how many stories I and almost every woman I know have about things like this. And when you actually look at who's committing this abuse, it's majority straight men. Many of these disgusting and insinuating attacks on trans and LGBT people are actually projections of what predatory cisgender and often straight men do when left alone in the presence of women or sometimes horribly children. So instead of getting you to challenge the patriarchy, they're trying to get you to challenge the very gender expressiveness that challenges patriarchy. Don't get it twisted, because a lot of people attacking drag are projecting. Look, I understand what she's trying to do there, yeah, and I certainly I don't think she quite nailed that. Yeah, one. <laughs> I'm empathetic with the experience that she's describing, and the experience that she's right that a lot of women have gone through, and statistically, what she's saying about who is normally doing it. It, it's correct. I mean, that's just right because but that's, that's, statistically, that's, just, but that's statistically that is most of the popular overwhelming right. and, majority of the population. And as and as we've been saying, you know, over the last couple yeah. of days now, 
the jump from this is like a statistical trend to we should characterize the nature of what's going on here as linked to a person's identity is a is a dangerous leap. And I, I understand the desire to push back, given the narrative that's coming out of Tucker Carlson and some of these, these um, more right-leaning media figures and political figures right now. But I don't think that doing what they are doing two wrongs making a right is the way to resolve this. I think that you should say, despite the statistical reality that it would entitle me to make similar claims about the the inherent toxicity of white men, I'm choosing not to do so because well, it's not really about that. Just, you know, we're talking about a, a mass shooting that was, you know, children being gunned down, and then she's talking about, but but women, even young women, have experience of being made to feel uncomfortable in a sexual context. Like, those are not really comparable yeah. things at all. I, I, statistics on those things also are, are always very kind of all over the place. I used to do more reporting on uh, campus um, uh, campus due process procedures and sexual misconduct and all those kinds of things. It was before Me Too, but there was, you remember hearing over and over again, we hear, you know, one in four women on college campuses has been raped. And I did some reporting on this statistic, and it was, like, very hard to track that down. And it seemed like a, a very... A, Probably if you include all uncomfortable interactions that all people on campus have ever had, you could get to that number. But the kind of like, you know, like really graphic sexual assault, it was harder to trace down that thing. I, uh, I, I think that that's probably true. I also, I got to say, as a woman in the world with girlfriends and talking to people at a certain point, and this is outside of a college campus mm. context. I, I am confident that sexual assault is much more common than most people believe it is. Um, that being said, I do think that this example that she brought up wasn't necessarily as germane to what's going on right now as I would have liked. And she does sometimes have a tendency, and I know this is hard and politicos struggle with this, to personalize things and, and give the appearance that She's making things about her that aren't really about her. And I don't think that's her intention. And I think the underlying issue she's talking about is legitimate and, mm -hmm. and fair game. But I don't know that this is the time. Well, or there, place. there's also like an elite discourse around it where people are obsessed with it on campuses, even though sure. uh, actually the good statistics we had is that women in college Absolutely. were far less likely to suffer this it's than people in working class. It's family, it's all those things. Yeah, not saying people sexual in the misconduct. Foster is care not system, right, exactly. low income people not being able to have access to the criminal justice system and not having their crimes, their perpetrators to track down, all of that is yeah, completely yeah, yeah. true. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, I, I do think we should always push back on people trying to blame an entire group yeah. for the actions of one person. Let's blame that person. Yeah, that used to be a liberal progressive principle. <laughs> yes, yeah, but in no, but, but both sides, you know, we're in such a such a rotten time in the discourse. I mean, this has been going on for a while, but people just want to demonize the entire other side when they can yeah. slot someone on, you know, ostensibly connected to that side, having done something really horrible. Yeah, and it's a bad impulse. Makes us a worst. Makes us worse off. Uh, before we uh, go to Brianna's radar, we do want to issue a correction for something we said in a segment yesterday. When covering an update on the investigation into the Biden family's overseas financial connections, we cited Republican Senator Ron Johnson telling Fox News that a Chinese-owned bank. A, a bank owned by China that was headquartered in L.A. was hand, had handed over a cache of financial records that strengthens the House Oversight Committee's investigation. We identified the bank falsely as Chinese-owned. It's an American bank, actually, and we want to read a statement from the spokesperson of that bank. Ka 
Uh, yeah, we're going to put it up there. Cathay Bank is an American bank founded, headquartered, and publicly traded in the United States, which proudly serves our local communities across nine states. Founded more than 60 years ago in Los Angeles, where it is still based, Cathay is not in any way owned or controlled by the Chinese government, and any suggestion to the contrary is false. Okay, we got that out of the way, and we'll have Brianna's radar coming up next, and of course, more developments on the horrible shooting as they come. Stay with us. What's on your radar, Brianna? Well, Robbie, millions of French protesters have taken to the streets of Paris this week to protest Macron's plan to raise the retirement age to 64. There's no constituency pushing for this plan. He was unable to pass legislation democratically, facing opposition from the left and the right, and tried to use his executive powers to push it through, which is part of why we're seeing such a robust pushback from the people of France, with rail workers, teachers, and sanitation workers all going on strike at various points. But in America, it's a different story. Neoliberal corporatists in both parties have hatched and endorsed plans to raise the retirement age over and over again, and never do we see this kind of pushback. Instead, even some self-described progressives have become inured to the think tank-driven talking points about the need to raise the retirement age. Yesterday, apparently drawn to the subject by the French uprising, Brooklyn-based journalist and identitarian feminist progressive Jill Filipovic took time out of a high-end writer's retreat in East Africa to ponder whether raising the retirement age wasn't such a bad idea after all. After all, she mused, in nations where populations are healthier and are living longer, doesn't it just make sense to work a little longer? Let me tell you why it doesn't. First off, workers have been working harder and productivity has been increasing steadily, and yet the benefits of that labor have been going to a smaller and smaller sliver of elites. The dream of yesteryear was that increased productivity and better technology would lead to fewer work hours for the general population over time. Yet that hasn't happened. Why? Well, for one, increased productivity does not benefit everyone equally. We are, in fact, in the middle of a new gilded age, where the elites who benefit from your labor have more and more leisure time, while working people have to staff Walmarts into their 70s or drive Ubers to continue to support themselves and their families long after, historically, they would have drawn pensions. As one poster asked of Jill, why should the benefits of longer life and health accrue to employers as more exploitable hours of labor rather than to individuals in the form of a longer, healthier retirement? especially given that the rich have been paying a smaller and smaller portion of their spoils to taxes. In the 1960s, when pensions were more reliable, the top marginal tax rate was 91%. That applied to single-filer salaries over $200,000, which in today's dollars would apply to earnings uh, over about $1.5 million for a single-filer. Today, the top tax rate is 37% and only applies to money earned after your first half a million or so. But despite keeping much more of their cash, the 1% pays a much lower proportion of their wealth toward Social Security. Maximum taxable income for Social Security is about $160,000 a year, meaning that a nurse anesthesiologist pays the same into Social Security as Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos. Moreover, earnings for those who make more than the max tax have ballooned in comparison to earnings growth for those who make less than that maximum tax, meaning that while the rich are getting richer and have more money to spare, the tax becomes increasingly regressive. 
As it turns out, eliminating the payroll cap would raise more than $1 trillion in revenue over a 10-year period. And since richer people live longer, it makes sense that they should pay more into the retirement system. Currently, the richest American men live 15 years longer on average than the poorest American men, meaning that low-income and working-class Americans are paying more into a system they don't benefit as much from. And longevity gaps also appear between those with bachelor's degrees and those without. The rich are living longer, earning more, and, repeat, and reaping those benefits. They're also the ones lobbying Congress with their extra dough to raise the entire retirement age. Keep in mind that these people are not working traditional jobs to begin with. Folks like Jill Filipovic, who opine about how much working longer makes so much sense, are often in sedentary desk jobs like journalism or podcasting. They're not conceptualizing what it means to be a 70-year-old Uber driver or sanitation worker. While Twitter warriors opine about how working a few extra years is no big deal, rideshare companies are actively recruiting senior drivers, exploiting the fact that fewer and fewer people can actually afford to retire at all. Only 22% of Americans say they have enough money to comfortably retire at all. That dream is out of reach for Americans like Maria Rios, who at 75 had worked a food prep job at the Phoenix International Airport for 17 years, making $14.50 an hour. Her husband received $400 a month in Social Security benefits. And while Maria said she'd like to retire, she couldn't afford to, even though she was battling ovarian cancer. Even putting aside the effect income has on life expectancy, life expectancy overall is lagging in the United States behind peer countries. And it's worse in red conservative states, which ironically are headed by the very conservative politicians who often push to cut Social Security. Mississippi, West Virginia, Louisiana, Alabama, Kentucky, Arkansas, Tennessee, Oklahoma, those top the list of lowest life expectancy states. As Tom Friedman put it in an op-ed he wrote at the end of last year in The Times, one way to think about all of this, which is only a slight caricature, is that Republicans are telling janitors in Oklahoma they can't get benefits in their 60s, even though their life expectancy hasn't gone up by much because lawyers in New York are living longer. When Lindsey Graham, senator from South Carolina, suggests, and I quote, we're going to have to adjust the age one more time, did he realize that his state is number 10 on America's lowest life expectancy list? Or does he just not care? Jill Filipovic was the character of the day on Twitter yesterday, but she's far from the only person in the laptop class, a class I belong to, to look upon the French protests and confusion. Writer and Paris resident Thomas Chatterton Williams, who's a thoughtful writer whose work I often enjoy, opined last week that he, quote, never understood the French desire to retire as soon as possible and then have a decade or two or three to do what you really want on a pension. He said, I always thought work was fundamental to my sense of self and I'd, I'd do it till the end. Now I just hope that AI won't take that future away. In response, leftist professor Catherine Liu made the point I've been making for the last 10 minutes or so of this radar much more succinctly. She said, have you ever done physical manual labor or driven a metro train for eight hours a day for years at a time? That really is the question. While credentialed elites may think of work as central to our identity and may engage in work that is not physically strenuous, and maybe even improves over time because it relies on experience and intellectual growth, that's not necessarily the reality for millions of American workers for whom work is work. 
and who spend long, hard hours driving trucks across the country, bagging groceries, attending to the elderly, or working construction. These workers deserve to retire before their bodies give out on them and to enjoy their old age with their families, especially given that their old age is likely to be significantly more brief than that of wealthier Americans. Elites are bargaining away other people's futures. Their ability to retire isn't contingent on Social Security payments anyway. They have ample savings outside of those sums to rely on. Their interests are not necessarily your interests. The French seem to understand that, and working people in that country are showing an incredible amount of solidarity with each other against elites who would rather work them to death than tax the rich. If neoliberal corporatists try to raise the American workers' retirement age again, Will American workers stand together and fight, or will they follow the laptop class's advice and simply toil on? I'm afraid we'll find out soon enough. So, Robbie, this was in part sparked by an exchange that we had the other day. I know. We're gonna, we disagree here. That's okay. <laughs> Tell me why, Robbie. Look, it's not... You can retire whenever you want. What we're really talking about is what is the age at which you become someone else's obligation to take care of. You become, it is mandatory for the taxpayers or other people to provide for you. That's the question. The people who are retiring, the Robbie, are the taxpayers. Social Security isn't an entitlement. People pay into that program. It's a savings fund that the government sets up so that people can afford to retire. Before Social Security, you literally had be old insolvent people. insolvent by the time people our age and younger get there. So there's two things on that. One, Social Security was designed to require um, uh, funding in a way that other government programs don't, so that it's facing these kind of fake insolvency crises routinely in a way that, let's say, military spending does not, because there's no obligation there. At the same time, if you did want to make it insolvent, there are ways to do so. For example, raising this artificial cap on how what percentage of one's salary pays towards Social Security. One might ask, if rich people are living longer, if they have more money, why is it that anybody over $160,000 a year in earning is paying the exact same amount to Social Security as someone who makes much less than that? I mean, it comes down to a philosophical difference between us. I don't want to confiscate more money from people who earned it to What's the justification for the Social Security uh, tax to be regressive? If you, if, on some level, acknowledge there should be Social Security, people should pay into Social Security, why should there be an artificial maximum cap instead of it being a percentage of your income, regardless of if you make millions of billions of dollars a year or you make tens of thousands of dollars a year? I guess I don't feel very strongly about that. Maybe it should be a percentage of your income anyway. I mean, you were talking about 91% of people's income after they reach a certain threshold. That seems crazy to well, me. Well, I mean, that seems wasn't a Social Security tax. That was, that was the generalized tax at a time seems in American very bad. history. Wait a minute. But that was at a time in American history that a lot of people look back to very fondly. And people felt a lot more secure, not everybody obviously, but a lot of people felt more secure in their retirement. And by the way, that was the equivalent of taxes over having earned about $1.5 million. Anything you earn over your first $1.5 million as a single filer in 1960, whatever. I mean, I know that's change, but uh, I think that's a pretty authoritarian for the government sure, to take the, the that much of your the wealth. The question is, burden. if I make billions of dollars a year, isn't the, a percentage tax on my income worth less to me because of the, you know, there's Maslow's hierarchies of needs. There's basically that every everybody needs food, clothes, shelter, and the diminishing value of money after a certain point is a real 
statistically observable economic phenomenon. That being the case, if money is worth less to extremely rich people than working class or low-income people, why is it that they pay a lower percentage of, of their tax into a system to support people in retirement when rich people aren't even relying on Social Security? They have, they have their own wealth. They're not relying on the Social Security payments to survive mm -hmm. to begin with. Why is it that poor people should be paying more into a system, especially when they're not even living as long as rich people, to draw down on the payments that they've, they've provided? I guess I would say that a, a better way, or a way I, I would prefer to solve this problem is look at what is, um, what is driving up the cost, making it more difficult to retire and still have enough money because everything costs more, food, gas, housing, um, the education you're trying to provide for your kids along the way, and do we have, do we have policies in place that have you know, artificially blown up the cost of those things even over the last you know, several decades, which I think, has definitely I think that's happened fine in to look at. healthcare and education in particular. I, I definitely, well, one good thing that seniors have going for them is that we do have Medicare for all. I mean, we have Medicare, we have yeah. free healthcare for people at least when they're over 65. But this is, this is part of the issue. You're completely right that inflation has been concentrated in um, education, food, uh, and, and uh, transportation and healthcare. Mm -hmm. One of, the, one of, one of the, the education piece for seniors is a big issue. The fastest growing population um, that's indebted to, has student loan debt is actually seniors. And so I think you're absolutely right. People are using their social security payments to pay off student loans in a way that has never been the case in American history. Those are problems that are coexisting. Fundamentally, however, you're going to have to figure out with, with these insolvency problems, they're being used as a political stick to get people to want to raise the retirement age, which is not actually solving the problem. It's just further skewing it to become a system where the most long-living, affluent people are able to take advantage of a system that the poorest people who are paying disproportionately more into it are dying too soon to actually The elderly, exploit. on average, are more affluent than other sectors of our society, which I, this is, I tend to see this as a great wealth confiscation from younger people to older people. It's the younger people who are protesting in France because they, and they- Yeah, I know, it's very, very kind of all the young people all over the world to want to support their elderly forever. They don't know forever. that they'll ever be able to retire. They don't know that they'll ever be able to make it. We have all of these, I think, really important conversations about the decline of the, of the white life expectancy in particular, which has never happened in the United States. These diseases of despair that are racking these part of- Whatever, whatever, whatever reason that people are dying, there are young people who are in the 20s and 30s that are paying into these systems who are very skeptical that and they're we'll going to make benefit. it yeah. to, to 65. I would, well, <laughs> they should be skeptical that they'll 60, see any benefit to these systems when they get to Much less to 67 or to 70, which is what Republicans, and, and Democrats, I would say, um, that neoliberals across the political spectrum want to do. So, you know, I'm interested to hear more from you guys in the audience about how you're feeling about the sustainability of these systems, and we'll have more rising for you after this. Later today, President Biden will speak before other nations in the 2023 Democracy Summit in an effort to reinforce global unity in the context of the Ukraine-Russia conflict. Now, according to reports, Biden is expected to announce $690 million in funding as part of his administration's Presidential Initiative for Democratic Renewal. The White House says these funds will go into fighting corruption, buttress freedom of the press, and defend fair elections. Hmm. Meanwhile, Biden weighed in on the political chaos that gripped Israel this week over Prime Minister Netanyahu's effort to reform the country's judiciary. This is what he told reporters yesterday. Let's watch. Like many strong supporters of Israel, I'm very concerned. And I'm concerned that they get this straight. They cannot continue down this road. 
and uh, I've sort of made that clear. I hopeful, hopefully, uh, the prime minister will act in a way that he's going to try to work out some genuine compromise, but that remains to be seen. Netanyahu hit back this morning saying he will not succumb to pressure from even the best of friends to pull back the judicial overhaul. Uh, this is, to be really clear, Robbie, it's not a reform to the judiciary. It is a move that many people are describing as a somewhat authoritarian one to basically take over one of the only independent branches of government that exist in the Israeli system, and one of the only mechanisms politically that have offered any relief for Palestinians who are by law, like, shut out from the rights and privileges of the legal system and e equal kind of um, representation under, under the law to uh, adjudicate their claims. So, you know, this is a—such a huge overreach that, you know, young people in Israel who are, unlike the United States, disproportionately more conservative and potentially less sympathetic to the plight of Palestinians in the area have come out to the streets in protest. And it's so—it's such a aggressive move that even Joe Biden, who— counts Israel as one of his closest friends and allies, uh, has been willing to make this statement, which might be mild in the grand scheme of things, but in the context of this geopolitical relationship, it's is, is quite, is quite strong. Look, I am a fan of an independent judiciary, I think maybe more even than you are, actually. Um, and I'm not particularly supportive of Benjamin Netanyahu's administration. However, this looks to me like, ultimately, this is a plan, right, to subjugate the judiciary to the legislative body. I don't know that that's necessarily anti-democratic. And I, I, again, we, we had a guest on this yesterday, and I, I guess I wasn't totally persuaded by what he said. I mean, because in, in the U.S. context, the, the strident and increasing independence of the Supreme Court is um, something that a lot of liberals and progressives are very upset about, because it overrules a lot of you know, what they're doing in, in legislative terms. And I don't these things seem a little bit in conflict to me. Um, I mean, it just, well, ha it just one of, well, it one happens of the to be that in, in, the, in the U.S., conservative power is concentrated in the court, uh, in the Supreme Court specifically. And in Israel, um, I think uh, progressive power is concentrated in the court. I don't think the court is especially progressive. I just, well, just think it's progressive more progressive. enough for, me, for you, for your no, taste. No, no, this isn't about me. I'm just saying it's, it happens to be marginally to I, look I think the people mm -hmm. my, my point about describing the politics of the people who are protesting is to say they're not protesting because they are lefties who find you know it, it's more of an indictment of how far right and how out of step with the population Netanyahu is you can make an argument that the decisions by the Supreme Court even if I disagree with them, are more or less in line with the decisions of average Americans that something like um, abortion has always been in kind of a middle ground with not, you know, 60 percent of support for maintaining the law of what it is, but not overwhelming in the way that some other things are. Mm -hmm. I should be clear that the decisions out of the Supreme Court that are most impactful and which are undercovered and ignored and which are very much dictated by a conservative majority are these financial decisions that enormously ratchet back um, uh, kind of economic protections for working class people, but, that, but they don't get as much attention as the cultural issues. But put the, putting that to the side, you can make the case that the, the Supreme Court is much more aligned with what's going on in the United States than what's going on in Israel. And while I have my own feelings about the inadequacies of the, of the Supreme Court, overwhelming majorities of Americans feel like it offers a counterbalance and that we have these three parts of government that are supposed to balance each other out. The point that our guests made yesterday was that Israel doesn't even have structurally the same 
tension between a House, a Senate, and, and the executive the way that we do. And so absent the court, it really is much more of an executive fiat situation. And given how conservative Netanyahu is, even compared to the other conservatives in Israel, that is why even a conservative, youthful population is choosing to come out and protest this particular right. power. And again, I'm, no, I'm no fan of him, but he was the, you know, elected, he's the choice of the elective body. Uh, the body is elected. They choose him to be the leader. And he's seeking more control over Again, I'm not particularly invested in this. It just seems like if if the if you know if in the U.S. if there was a you know a, I, I, these are progress these are usually progressive plans or plans coming from Democrats and liberals and progressives to like you know have a retirement age for the Supreme Court or have uh, you know have more ju more justice some fair way of picking the justices so that the the sitting president often a Democrat uh, for the last, you know, 20 years, uh, would have a, a better ability to pick his justices and, you know, not—right now, you basically have to have a president and Senate of the—you know, a 60-Senate majority and the president uh, to do it. Uh, well, actually, 51 majority. But, uh, but, like, a proposal to give the president more power or the, the the party that's ruling more power over the Supreme Court, I don't think would be would be considered anti-democratic in the U.S. context. So it's odd to me to be again. I'm not very invested in this question. As I said, I don't really care. But the outrage seems it seems partisan to me. It's just, this is more but powerful I, Netanyahu, which people don't. I like. just don't understand how it can be partisan if people who are political conservatives, to your point, people who may have even voted for and supported Netanyahu are objecting to this move. I mean, you're, it's like you're describing a world in which just because someone voted for Trump, they can't have displeasure with something that he does in office. Millions of people voted for Biden and are deeply frustrated with the fact that he's opened up art drilling in the Arctic. People vote for folks because they prefer them to the alternative or maybe even substantively like them and then find themselves disappointed by things that they do in office Well, then I guess the, the Netanyahu coalition will face some major blowback in the next Israeli elections. And maybe that—I mean, I, he lost once before, right? And then he faced corruption well, charges a, and I think all that kind of stuff. a little premature. What we're talking about now is whether or not there is going to be uh, international pressure because of the standing that Israel has claimed for itself and that America has put on it in the international sphere as a protector of the rule-based order, as one of the only democracies in the region, et cetera, et cetera, whether it can stand on two feet and continue to make those kinds of claims when, on top of the abominable way that they've treated Palestinians, they are now also in the middle of what, in any other country, would be described as a kind of despotic power grab of an executive. And that is why I think you're getting Biden pushing back, even mildly as it is, in a way that is like relatively unprecedented and why you're getting this really harsh um, uh, series of tweets from Netanyahu, you know, again, contextualized within their relationship, which is gratuitously friendly, Netanyahu saying, I have known President Biden for over 40 years and I appreciate his longstanding commitment to Israel. Uh, however, he's not going to—what does he say? Um, Israel is a sovereign country which makes its decision by the will of its people and not based on pressures from abroad, including from the best of friends. I mean, that's a very That's clear... all well and good. I would turn off the aid to them anyway. We don't need to be—we uh, don't need to be sending the military. I would do that, along with several actual leading Republicans, including Rand Paul. So uh, I, would, I would do you one better than, uh, than, yeah. than old Joe, but who's that's, making that's this milk so interesting. I don't, I don't think it will come to that. But the fact that that is even, um, you know, Biden's willingness to articulate displeasure. Mm -hmm. Up until this point, you know, 
the, we live in a political environment where being critical of Israel's behavior at all is often characterized as anti-Semitic. Any thought of uh, withdrawing any aid in any way, shape, or form is is characterized as anti-Semitic or not wanting Israel to exist or or these kinds of statements. And that is, I think, why it is so interesting and notable that Joe Biden is willing to weigh in at this point. And I don't know exactly what is provoking it, because certainly there's any number of reasons that Biden could have criticized um, Netanyahu up until this point. The fact of uh, the, you know, the reason, the fact that so many, the reason so many progressives are concerned about this um, judiciary, judiciary overhaul is because of the way the judiciary has been the last bulwark against uh, incursions on uh, Palestinian rights. But certainly the U.S. has turned a blind eye to that sort of thing for a really long time. So the fact that this now is what's causing Biden to speak out is interesting, and it suggests to me that there is an authoritarian push by Netanyahu in the country that is getting even too intense for America to ignore. We skipped over the first part of the story, the uh, $690 million for this Renew Democracy initiative, which I'm, I'm looking up at the White House website. Um, seems... Um Part of this is supporting free and independent media to help mitigate the existential threat to the survival of independent media. We're part, it's, this is a partnership with Microsoft to create a new web-based data platform that will enable media outlets to better understand their markets, audiences, and strategies. $16 million for the promotion of information integrity and resilience. The fighting corruption part is not very specified to me. Um, this doesn't seem like the greatest use of... No, and it, in the grand scheme of things, it's not that much money. But, it's you know, I, I do money, think but, these uh, stories, I mean, the stories are related insofar as America goes around saying things like it wants to do democracy summits and have this kind of global standing and authority around the world at the same time that it is refusing to allow a U.N. investigation into who actually bombed the Nord Stream pipeline and tacitly endorsing and funding what is quickly becoming a, a, a rather authoritarian regime in one of our closest allies in the Middle East. And so at some point, the ship has to be righted if America wants to have the authority to, to take on the conflicts that I think are more useful to it in the geopolitical context, like the war, the proxy war against Russia. Yeah, this is, uh, <laughs> I can't think of worse ways to spend American tax dollars, actually, but, well, I can think of some worse ways, you but this is not a, this isn't on the, on the good list either. We'll have more rising right after this. So earlier this week, Fox News host Tucker Carlson had a take that was very similar to my own radar from yesterday on the real reason behind this momentum in Congress to ban the Chinese uh, app TikTok. Here's a bit of his monologue. Let's watch. So one of the bills that would ban TikTok is being pushed, as we said, by senators in both parties. It's called the Restrict Act. Mark Warner of Virginia and John Thune of South Dakota, Democrat and Republican, introduced this legislation. Now, the bill is ostensibly about protecting American national security and ending, quote, foreign adversaries from interfering in our elections through apps like TikTok. Because, of course, election interference by Twitter and Facebook is no problem at all. But election interference from TikTok is totally unacceptable. Okay. But in reality, and you should know this if you're opposed to TikTok, as we are, this bill isn't really about banning TikTok. It's never about what they say it is. Instead, this bill would give enormous and terrifying new powers to the federal government to punish American citizens and regulate how they communicate with one another. Though not set in stone, a proposal to bar TikTok is very much alive in Congress. Though progressives on Capitol Hill, including Representatives AOC, Jamal Bowman, and Pramila Jayapal, have opposed their colleagues calling for the ban, 
House Democratic Caucus Chair Pete Aguilar told rep reporters that no one is, quote, closing the door on that option. Hill Democrats aren't the only ones against the ban. In a recent op-ed, Kentucky Senator Rand Paul, Republican, also came out against it. He wrote, I hope saner minds will reflect on which is more dangerous videos of teenagers dancing or the president of the U.S. government banning speech. Um, it was a terrific op-ed by Rand Paul hitting all the points I hit on in my radar the other day. And I was very, Tucker Carlson's monologue also touched on a lot of what I said about this Restrict Act, which really is a kind of Patriot Act um, for the internet. Uh, it, look, it, it's, it's an odd group of people to all be agreeing. Tucker Carlson, Rand Paul, AOC, Ilhan Omar had a pretty good statement about this. But um, you know what? Sometimes the people who don't fall into that squishy centrism of just saying, oh, yeah, we need the government to do more of this thing, uh, but who are actually thinking through the consequences for civil liberties, and disproportionately, that's people who have been um, who have been under assault by the government. So that can be people who are very much to the right and people who are very much to the left in, in the, you know, the anti-authoritarian right, the anti-authoritarian left. Absolutely. They get it. Um, yeah, this is very dangerous stuff. Yeah, so specifically, I think there is, it's worth talking about what this act would do, uh, because talking about it as a TikTok ban, I do think, gets people who are maybe skeptical about, about TikTok, afraid of, of China. Tucker Carlson said in his monologue that he's actually not a fan of TikTok, but is opposed to the Restrict Act. And I, so I think it's worthwhile to talk about what it actually could mean for people. Under the Restrict Act, VPN users face 20 years in jail and a million-dollar fine uh, if they evade U.S. internet uh, censorship. Uh, they would put you in, in jail for for 20 years for using a website or app that is operated by a foreign adversary. That's like the level of penalty that we're talking about here, which you can obviously imagine encountering accidentally. People all, all the time go around firewalls to download illegal stuff yes. or access things you know, from other yeah, countries. You're talking about- um, you're, so in, you're in Canada and you want to use Netflix. Virtual private networks, yeah. VPNs. My colleague at Reason, Elizabeth Nolan Brown, she has a great piece today about uh, arguing exactly that, that she thinks the Restrict Act could very well be used to criminalize VPNs, which people use to to have more data privacy. Yeah. People often use these things, or, or to evade, um, or they live in places where they're authoritarian governments, they want to evade them, or you could use them for more privacy. And, uh, and, and yeah, the Restrict Act wording is, is very broad. And it, it's all about you know, foreign threats, the, the right of the government, the, the Commerce Secretary specifically, to take action against foreign threats. But we know that deterring foreign threats has been the argument that has been used for so many civil liberties violations, um, you know, going back to the Patriot Act stuff, but then also in the, over the last, um, you know, six years with respect to social media. So much of the narrative about how, uh, how democracy is being eroded by Facebook in particular, Twitter and others, because it's, it's, it's got, um, it's been infiltrated yeah. by foreign actors, you know, uh, reporting that turned out to be substantially false. But that argument was, was used against social media com companies over and over again, American social media companies. So I'm worried, you know, when are they going to say that, is the Secretary of Commerce going to say that, well, yeah, Facebook has too many Russian bots. So to deter this foreign threat, we get to take action against Facebook or, or Instagram or Snapchat or Twitter or YouTube, like, or YouTube the, the, you know, the platform where, are they going to say we're foreign threats because, you know, we try to fairly represent both sides of the, the Russia-Ukraine uh, dispute, you know, with while well, understanding that Russia is the aggressor and Vladimir Putin is very bad, but you know, we try to offer some pushback to the mainstream um, uh, corporate press 
position, yeah. are we going to be described as a foreign influence and, Look, and though YouTube can't host it, us? It's very concerning. People didn't care when RT was pulled off of these social yeah. media platforms when the war started. Um, it didn't. People turned a blind eye to all kinds of left censorship that happened when the war started. Uh, there has been an anti-democratic effect on these platforms, which were really uh, democratizing and which allowed small content creators that didn't have the imprimatur of big corporate behemoths behind them to have the same level of platform and access. And in the earlier days of YouTube, people saw enormous growth of their independent channels and could really compete with the mainstream news. Over the last few years, choices that have been made at companies like YouTube have gone directly to trying, it seems, to undermine the ability of smaller content creators to really compete. And they have algorithmically created preferences for the same mainstream mm -hmm. institutions that people went to YouTube to escape. Yeah. And now we're seeing whatever's going on with Twitter, which again, had an incredible democratizing effect. It wasn't as broadly used as a platform ever as something like YouTube, but it allowed normal people to do citizen journalism, to be able to confront journalists and political figures directly on the app in a really equal way. And now we're seeing moves by Elon Musk to make it so that your For You page only has verified users. You have to basically pay to be seen on the app, which he's framing as democratizing, but frankly, it quite obviously isn't if you have to now pay money for your comments to have the same weight as somebody else on the app. If you wanted it to be democratizing, get rid of blue checks and don't require people to pay and like let everybody be on the same footing, but that's not what's happening. And I'm concerned that there is now a routine trend of undermining what has been a democracy expanding mm -hmm. trend on all of these apps and constraining it back so people are forced forced to go back into a hierarchical yeah. system that they had before. And TikTok, which is so popular and used by basically half of Americans, when you look at the number of TikTok videos that are circulating about what the Restrict Act would do and how powerful those are, you can start to get a sense of why it is in a lot of people's interest to shut down ordinary people's ability to communicate with each other and disseminate fact and factual information with the ease that apps like TikTok allow. Yeah, no, absolutely. And we know uh, that some of the bad decisions that we've seen on, on the other social media companies was due to government pressure. So you, you can't tell me that you, you, you described what you described on YouTube is absolutely has happened. The, the algorithmic prioritizing of the kind of mainstream um, voices that I, I, would, I would bet money that that has to do with, in part, because of communications they've had to minimize dissident voices. And you know, we've seen the email with respect to YouTube. Uh, with respect to Twitter and Facebook, I've seen emails. I, I know YouTube was in the same conference calls with the same federal officials yeah. as, as people from those organizations. So the, the, the government incentives have mattered to these companies. These companies have not broadly said, yeah, we're not going to listen to you. We're going to do whatever we want. They've, they've said, OK, what do you want us to do? So whatever power you give the government on the TikTok front will will absolutely you'd be naive you'd be you'd be it'd be insane it'd be foolish yep naive self denial mm -hmm. to think that this same power won't be used to chill American dissent on the other platforms so I'm very glad to see um, you know some interesting eclectic anti authoritarians from all over the political spectrum. You know, standing up not necessarily because they personally like TikTok or they think everything about it is, is great and fine and dandy and there's nothing to see here, but because we know that, I mean, <laughs> the Patriot Act was in response to something very bad yep. <laughs> yep. attacks by Islamic extremists on Americans. That doesn't mean we get rid of civil liberties and we end free speech, and right, right. 30 years from now, we're going to be dealing with cumbersome, tyrannical, 
anti-First Amendment, anti-due process, anti-freedom provisions yeah. that we're stuck with because in our moment of weakness, we were gullibly led to approve them. Absolutely. I'm going to get on TikTok while I still can. <laughs> More rising right after this. Twitter Files journalist Michael Schellenberger had this to say in his opening statement to Congress in the House Commerce, Communications and Technology hearing on preserving free speech and reining in big tech censorship yesterday. Here are events that actually happened. Twitter suspended a woman for saying, quote, women aren't men. Facebook censored accurate information about COVID vaccine side effects. Twitter censored a Harvard professor of epidemiology for expressing his opinion that children did not need the COVID vaccine. Facebook censored speculation that the coronavirus came from a lab. Facebook censored a journalist for saying accurately that natural disasters were getting better, not worse. Twitter permanently suspended a sitting president of the United States, even though Twitter censors themselves had decided he had not violated its terms of service. Now, maybe that kind of censorship doesn't bother you because people were doing their best to prevent real world harm with the knowledge they had at the time. He then posed this question. But what if the shoe were on the other foot? Consider how you would feel if the following occurred. Twitter suspended a woman for saying trans women are women. Facebook censored accurate information about COVID vaccine benefits. Twitter censored a Harvard professor for saying children needed to be COVID vaxxed annually. Facebook censored speculation that the coronavirus came from nature. Facebook censored a member of Congress for saying the world is going to end in 12 years because of climate change. Twitter permanently suspended President Biden, even though, according to Twitter's top censor, he had not violated its terms. Yeah, I think it's very difficult to argue with. I mean, ironically, I remember a time when the left used to be upset about, and maybe still is, but about social media platforms uh, censoring things like uh, jokes about, you know, white people's tears and stuff like mm -hmm. that, uh, whereas accounts that were, let's say, explicitly racist weren't getting censored. And there were all these battles on Twitter all the time about how I, I said, I roll white people and I got my account taken down and someone else said white power and they didn't get their account taken down. And I, I think that everyone is always going to have those kinds of issues with content moderation decisions. Who, who can tell what is actual racism what, versus what is a joke about race and all of this, which is why I think a, sta a standard yes. that says more, that's more laissez-faire is for probably a lot of more the, equitable. And you know, content moderation at scale is extremely difficult. Yeah. And people have a tendency to go, why is, why is this allowed and this not allowed when this seems like it violates the rules more than this. Mm -hmm. And then people forget often that a, most of content moderation is being done, it's, it's done after the fact. So, well, nobody complained about that yet. Yeah. Somebody complained about this, it was flagged, it was reviewed, no one has flagged that. I mean, I, I, which also goes to show you, I mean, just how some of these problems are gonna get worse, the more and more content there is. And you can't, it would be insane to expect and it, it wouldn't devolve to our benefit either to have uh, the, the platforms reviewing the content and then letting it go live. They can't, A, they can't do that. Yeah. It would just be impossible. I mean, which is why it is frustrating, I got to say, given that most of the moderation that's happening is happening at the algorithmic level, so little of the conversation that we've been having with respect to the Twitter files is about that. And it's not their fault. I mean, mm -hmm. they don't have as much, I'm sure, transparency into the algorithmic choices that are being made. And it requires probably a greater degree of technical know-how to really assess what's going on there. Yeah.
But it is the case that, it, uh, you know, these, these affirmative decisions that are being made about high-profile folks like Trump and, and other politicos are a very small piece of the pie, and that your average human being is getting caught up in algorithmic changes like the one that had, you know, the Hill shut down for two mm -hmm. weeks because we played a Trump video in which right. he did election denialism. I mean, that that is like a bigger fish issue, but most people are, are just, they'll never know to what extent their content just isn't good or they're not getting boosted by an algorithm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Matt Taibbi stirred the pot on Twitter when, uh, on yesterday when he tweeted, I'm an independent now, to which someone replied, are you still a Democrat? Then another user wrote, which means Republican. Taibbi responded to this exchange with, no, it doesn't, but talk like this is a big part of why I left the Democratic Party. It's always vote for us or you're a right-wing insurrectionist Putin lover, which is the opposite of persuasive. So Taibbi coming out as independent seems to me to be not especially surprising. He is someone who I think self-described as um, a Democrat who would vote for people like Joe Biden much longer than I think a lot of people in my leftist community would. So it's surprising to that end. A lot of us have been kind of identifying as independents for a long time. But I, I, I tend to agree with him that the idea of identifying as independent does get you a lot of backlash from, from mainstream Democrats who perceive that as a kind of a soft move to conservatism. What make you of it? <sighs> It's just another example of this trend of people who would would have once been accepted in progressive or left circles. Um, now, you know, being independent and, and almost having friendlier ties to some on the right, the way Joe Rogan wa does, the way Tulsi Gabbard does, the way, you know, and on and on and on, all these, uh, Russell Brand almost, Glenn Greenwald, you know, all people who are friendly on the show and have been on the show in the past, um, whose, whose worldviews, especially on these issues, I, I strongly agree with, especially on the speech, tech, censorship, all that stuff. Um, I, I think it's probably ultimately a criticism of mainstream Democrats and mainstream media for making these people who are not have not saying anything that that should be counter to what a progressive thinks about free speech and censorship, but these people don't feel welcome in those circles anymore um, because of the enormous, I mean, for many reasons, but in, including I think the enormous capture of mainstream media and Democratic Party by national security and law enforcement that has that kind of occurred during the Trump years, um, whereby you you know you just hear endlessly about if you watch. CNN, MSNBC, if you read New York Times, Washington Post, Atlantic, it's all about how bad faith Russian actors are destroying mm -hmm. our democracy on social and media. And Taibbi was so, I mean, the, the way he got alienated at, from liberals after being. Well, he's a, been trying to preach sanity so, on Russia for the beginning since yeah, the 90s. Yeah, and saying he, he was a liberal darling, a broad yeah. left darling for many years, and the reason. The, the, the fracture happened over his Russiagate reporting. Yeah. At the end of the day, he, he couldn't survive that. Trump became this animating force that defined all of American politics. And I will say also on the right, it's not as though Liz Cheney is getting a warm reception in the, in the Republican Party. People who have come out and been critical totally. of Trump have been ousted as well, and many people have tried to claw their way back in, um, you know, kissing their Yeah, there's always the some coalition shifting. Right, Liz yeah. Cheney out of the coalition, Adam Kinzinger out of the coalition. I saw he must have made some comments about that he doesn't like the fetishization of guns or something that goes on in Republican cultures, and immediately people found a 
photo yeah. of him doing the, you know, these are my guns and I love them photo with like his brother <laughs> from 2014. Um, you, yeah, you know, but, you, but that's right. So he doesn't sound like that anymore because he's now part of the Democratic coalition. It doesn't matter what he says about his nominal affiliation. He's part of the Democratic coalition. And so the things he says, the attitudes he takes, the things he focuses on will align with the Democratic coalition. And, you know, increasingly that's going to happen with people like Joe Rogan, with people like you know, uh, uh, the independent-minded people we're talking about, because they're getting a warmer reception from Republicans. Well, but that's, it's going to be hard not to feel captured. I, I, I am not a Democrat. I'm not condoning so it. I'm, just, I'm saying that's the... But I have a problem with this, because I'm not a Democrat, but no one who ever listened to the words coming out of my mouth would ever think that I would in a million years have any sympathy with the Republican Party, because mm -hmm. my critique is of a corporate style of politics that is equally present in both of those two corporate parties. Why would I jump out of a frying pan into a fire? That's ridiculous. So my concern, and I think the concern of some people, progressives, who also don't identify as Democrat, is that some folks like Taibbi and Glenn Greenwald and even um, uh, Joe Rogan, who have at times been critical of Democrats for the right reasons, sometimes decline. And I don't, that, I'm painting with a very broad brush here. I don't think that's what's true of mm -hmm. all the people I just mentioned. But at times decline to raise the identical critiques that can be made of the Republican Party in a way that stops, it shifts from feeling like a, a genuine ideological disagreement on principle to more of a vibes shift. And what you said about, well, I get a warmer reception in the Republican Party, it shouldn't be about where you get a warmer reception. Yeah. Intellectually, interpersonally, I agree that that is happening and that it's, it's easier to be around people who are nice to you, obviously, and the liberals should consider that in their approach. But intellectually, in terms of thought leaders and people that I respect and who I listen to, it is troubling that that would start to have an effect on these principled critiques that you have rightly made of the left when you are now being embraced by the right. You have to have the integrity to continue to push back against systems that are a problem, even if the people who are part of those systems are nicer to you. Yeah, no, no I, I don't disagree with you at all. It, it, it's a lesson for the Democratic Party, for actual members of Congress. I mean, we've watched you know, the, the other hearing, the hearing with Tybee and Schellenberger, and the level of contempt for them yeah. on these issues was really stunning. It and that's ju it's just going to drive away people yeah. you know, from D to I. To R. Now, I wish there were some real good third-party options, because then I think the slippage would be more difficult. If independents yes. could prove their independence and have some place where they could actually rally around shared interests outside of the two-party system, I think there would be a lot of opportunities for strength there. Uh, and yet, there are systemic yep. barriers to that happening. Very sad. We'll have more Rising right after this. Health organizations, vaccine experts have revised their global COVID-19 vaccination re recommendations and healthy kids and teenagers considered low priority may not need to get the shot. The updated roadmap is designed to prioritize COVID-19 vaccines for those at greatest risk of death and severe disease. This is according to the World Health Organization's strategic advisory group of experts on immunization. According to CNN, this update is being issued to reflect the Omicron stage of the pandemic and because of countries' high population immunity levels due to vaccines and infection, the group announced following a recent meeting. So this is very interesting. So they're saying, uh, so, so their new ranking is like a high-risk group, a medium-risk, and a low-risk group. And they said otherwise healthy kids and teens. Um, so if you don't have an immunized, a health condition, a compromised immune system, um, you're at, they're saying you may not need this shot. You are at low priority. 
So this is just reflecting a, a, a wisdom that most people have by now, which is that the, the vaccines are most important for the elderly and for the immunocompromised uh, because they, they don't stop you from getting COVID. Uh, they help you have a less rough bout of COVID, particularly if, if you're in one of those groups and if you've never had COVID before. The first, the first bout with the disease tended to be worse. So that's all well and good, and, and recommendations should follow that, and strategies for getting people vaccinated should follow that. But other countries, including the U.S., had for a very long time, really, everybody get vaccinated, everybody get booster shots. Um, some most vaccine mandates have fallen by the wayside by now in the U.S., but they're still U.S. colleges and universities. Many of them are are the most pro, are the most vaccine mandated places you can find in the entire country, aiming at the population uh, that is would substantially be considered low risk by World Health Organization recommendations. Yeah, the longer this uh, goes <laughs> on, the more it is clear that so much of the rationale behind COVID policy hinged on the idea that getting vaccinated meaningfully decreased your ability to transmit the yeah. disease. Yeah. That's it. The second that goes out of the window, one, you're in a more every man for himself kind of situation where it could be very, very advisable for you to get it because maybe you are at an at-risk population or maybe you haven't gotten COVID and maybe we're experiencing a... Um, strain of the virus that was putting a lot of people who are otherwise healthy into the hospital. But ultimately, that's a personal decision. You can weigh the risk rewards without there being any broader social impact. But the second we got into a place where you, they weren't able to prove that taking the vaccine didn't keep grandma alive, it didn't make sense to keep athletes out of the country because they might spread it at a tennis event, None of that, you know, none of that mandatory um, stuff started to make sense anymore. There should have been an acknowledgement and a kind of hard pivot away from it. And to this day, I still end up having conversations with people where we disagree about COVID policy, principally because they still don't understand that the promises of diminishing transmission never came to fruition, or at least no longer come to fruition now that we're in mm -hmm. several strains down the line of, of the cycle. And that's that's that's. A problem. And I'm looking for more acknowledgement from the camp of people who said, you just, why aren't we listening to the science and to the experts? Well, the science and the experts disagree. And scientific experts in other, in our peer countries, in the World Health Organization, are we supposed to be taking their advice seriously as well? It's, it's, it's only listen to like Dr. Fauci or, or Rochelle Walensky or something? No, the, the, the premise was always we're supposed to listen to, in, in fact, in the Democratic coalition, there's a kind of international consensus sort of model, right? We, you know, what are, what, are, what are the global health experts saying? And what they have said on vaccines, we're, we're, sort, we're becoming a kind of outlier in terms of how much vaccines for everyone at all levels is the strategy. Uh, that is that is not what our peer countries are doing. That's not what the World Health Organization says. And a lot of what we're doing on that front has fallen a little, has fallen more by the wayside as there's more, you know, we're not firing government workers anymore for not getting vaccinated, that kind of thing. Although we are, you know, putting the vaccines uh, on the vaccine schedule, which will have the effect of requiring them in some schools and also decreasing liability if there's anything of that nature. Yeah. So we, we will be in a situation uh, not everywhere, but in some parts of the country where we're requiring vaccines 
for young people requiring boosters, requiring they're requiring the bivalent booster for students at my yeah. at my other campus I graduated from, the University of Michigan. I, I would like to see <laughs> I would like to see a lot more um, free testing kits. Uh, I would like to see a lot more high quality masks distributed and made available in public places. Um, I was on a walk recently and realized I had to get home faster than I thought, and I had to get on the subway, and I didn't have a mask. I mean, you know, like uh, Things like that that actually have a relationship to preventing transmission, I would like to see those things being provided to the public for free if there really is this public health interest in stopping the transmission of this virus. However, these policies that are not well tailored to actually doing that, at a certain point, I, what I would really love to see is some public health officials going on TV and making a really clear statement about what we know now about COVID and transmission all these years later. I do think there is some evidence that on the margins, um, mm -hmm. being, vac vac being vaccinated does lower transmission because it, it keeps your time of having COVID shorter. Um, and so you're, you're infectious for a shorter period of time. Mm -hmm. The statistical significance of that, I think, is at issue. Right. And so I would genuinely love some clarity about that. Is If there's any reason to still believe that transmission is meaningfully affected by vaccination, I want to know. I don't have a dog on this fight. But my understanding at this point is that that is not the case. And there is just such a wild disagreement in the public about that because there hasn't been a statement made from on high. Hey, we were wrong about that or the scenario has changed or the virus has mutated and it's no longer that. Um, that is what's causing so much of the, fr the friction and anger in this country. And we're in a place where the overwhelming majority of people, not everyone, but the majority of people have had COVID sure. at least once. Many people have had COVID twice. And we, we know now, even though this idea was very much stigmatized by the health authorities to begin with, uh, that having been infected with COVID uh, does have a protective effect uh, in, in the ballpark of the, the protection you're getting from the vaccine. It, maybe it, we don't know, you know how long it lasts, that kind of thing. We don't know if it Which an we earlier should know. strain. They should we, be yeah, studying those are that the questions stuff. we have. Yeah. yeah. But, if you, but I mean, I think they even they tell you if you, if you had COVID, don't get another, don't get a shot right oh, away. Yes. Wait, I mean, we, we don't protect you for some period of time, but the question is, I mean, now that we're three years into this thing, yeah. it's like, does it protect you for six months? Does it protect you for a year? I'd be open to getting another booster, but if no one seems to have a clue as to when it would be advantageous, our health system being what it is, I'm not going to schedule a doctor's appointment, take time out of my day and my life and all of this stuff without some clear indications as, as to what what is actually indicated. It is wild how we went from having alerts on our phones and special updates on the TV and all of these, you know, uh, you know, uh, do you want to, you've been exposed alerts and the things like that telling us what was going on with this pandemic to basically radio silence. Truly, I cannot emphasize enough how much I think that the tensions over COVID are largely because of a failure to acknowledge changes mm -hmm. in what our understanding of the disease from the CDC. Yeah, remember when the experts all said breakthrough cases are gonna be rare? They're yeah. gonna say you're gonna hear about them and you're, you're, that's gonna make you think the vaccine doesn't work, yeah. but it is working, there will be breakthrough cases, but there, <laughs> then like, everyone got one. Yeah. Now, that that turned out not to be true. But it's liberals who I know there's a lot of vilification of oh you know you're a liberal and you're a Democrat and you were COVID shaming. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of that was true. But to the extent that there was people who still believe this stuff, it's not because 
they just want to believe it. I, I am telling you, I have conversation after conversation mm -hmm. with, with people who genuinely don't know that there has been any factual shift in our understanding of this virus. So they're not sitting around just saying, oh, I hate Joe Rogan and Ivermectin, and so I, I want to keep boosting to the end of my days. Mm -hmm. They legitimately don't know that the vaccines aren't offering the protections that they were, were offered. And that's the kind of misinformation that needs to be addressed. Yeah. Yeah, it's very, well, it's very, on that topic, it's very interesting what kind of misinformation is what right. gets addressed. Uh, you know, my own reporting on social media censorship, there were a lot of claims that government, that the CDC taught, talked to social media companies about and, and pushed them to suppress. Now, some of these claims relating to vaccines, I, I, I think, were inaccurate claims. Right. Uh, but their rationale for doing it was often, we don't want to discourage vaccination, including of children. Mm -hmm. um, that was in some of the emails I reviewed. That, like, that was their reason. Again, I didn't mean the underlying claim was necessarily accurate, but what they're saying is we can't, you can't allow any criticism of vaccines because we don't want to stall any of the political momentum for, for even for childhood vaccine mandates. And that yeah. looks pretty, pretty uh, short-sighted to be moderating on that basis now. Yeah. More rising right after this. It is our job today to get answers for them, not to play politics at their expense. Now, I, I know this happened in my district, so it's personal to me. I acknowledge that, but it could have happened in any of my colleagues' districts. It is our job to reassure this small community that here in Congress, on this committee, we will work to ensure the cleanup is completed and that we will not stop our questions and oversight until the health and environmental concerns of this community are addressed. Because we do the same regardless of where it had happened. The House Subcommittee on Environment, Manufacturing, and Critical Materials finally held a hearing on the derailment in East Palestine, Ohio yesterday. That was Chairman Bill Johnson of Ohio's uh, of Ohio's opening statement. Many were hoping to receive accountability and answers regarding the train derailment and subsequent environmental crisis. However, Jordan Cheriton, a journalist for Status Quo News, called the hearing a complete joke. Norfolk Southern was not present. It took half an hour to bring up widespread resident health issues with no mention of symptoms like dizziness, bloody noses, or chemical burns. Yeah, the crew at Status Coup and other journalists who have taken the time to stay on the ground in East Palestine have been reporting on a series of increasingly significant uh, health responses to the crisis. And the idea that those more significant um, uh, problems that people are reporting weren't even the focus of this hearing. And moreover, that the company responsible for the incident didn't even bother to show up. It's, it's a real indictment, especially given how this particular tragedy occupied the news cycle for most of February. And conservatives really took ownership over the area as a Republican district that was being ignored by a Democratic administration. Trump visited. Biden still hasn't visited. Pete Buttigieg had a kind of failed, disastrous visit. And it really seemed like this was a cause that was going to maybe have retribution because it was being championed, perhaps, but for political reasons, but whatever. It was being championed by at least one of the two major parties. And it is a little frustrating to see that now when the rubber is hitting the road and these hearings that could lead to some accountability are actually happening, that same energy that existed a month ago in using the people of East Palestine to highlight the 
um, failures of the state in, in its disaster response have completely gone out the window. Yeah, we had a reporter, I believe, from Status Quo News on uh, a few recently, a few weeks ago, uh, to talk about. He, he was there. He he had been there recently, talking with residents of East Palestine about you know, the medical conditions that they were still suffering. And he himself said yes. that he, he was feeling dizzy and um, lightheaded. I think he was describing some other symptoms that really did necessitate wearing a mask. Um, you know, that's that's really concerning stuff. This is their town. They don't feel safe in their homes. Um, it's hard it's hard for them to, you know, relocate. And the relocation is for a brief period of time, I think. And you have to you get that approved, and it's, you know, bureaucratic mess. Uh, I, nobody has time, you know, to be on the phone forever with authorities trying to explain to them your medical condition, um, least of all, you know, the kind of working uh, people who have multiple jobs, who have families to take care of. So you really feel for them. And uh, it sounds like this hearing was a big letdown. Uh, did not get to those medical issues right away, which I, I think really is the, should be the crux of the concern. Yes. These are ongoing. These are people, these aren't even things people are, you know, we're going to be talking about what things people have suffered years down the line. This is happening right now. Correct. Correct. And look, this is important, I think, even if you are not from Ohio or not from East Palestine, obviously it's a small community of uh, just under 5,000 people. But there are a number of water crises that are unfolding all across the country. Um, there was a, a prohibition on drinking water. People were supposed to be drinking tap and bottled water in Philadelphia over the past week. There have been any number of incidents across the country from Jackson, Mississippi to Detroit, Michigan. It is much more common than even the news reporting would admit. And it speaks to the, idea, the fact that we don't have adequate response mechanisms in place when our critical infrastructure fails. In this case, obviously, it's because of a train derailment that leached toxic chemicals into the groundwater. But the response in terms of, are people going to be relocated? Are people going to be provided with water to drink and to bathe with? Are people going to have um, remuneration for their declined uh, housing values? If their pipes are corroded and they need to be replaced, are those going to be things that they get support for? Especially because these decisions over and over again, if you go back to Flint, are not because of the personal failures of individuals who are not keeping up their houses or what have you. In Flint, it was a choice that was be was made by politicians and corporatists to try to save money by switching over the source for city water to a water source that caused the corrosion in the pipes and damaged them in the first instance, all to save money, all to divert the clean, good water that people were using to be used by the car manufacturers for profit-building reasons. It was also a jobs program. That was that was part of the reasons they wanted to do it in Flint was it was a make-work program. It was a shovel-ready project. They thought it would create jobs to do it. The, right. I mean, the, <laughs> this is part of the reason that, you know, a lot of people support things like direct payments and, mm -hmm. and UBI over... I mean, look, there are plenty of jobs that need to get done without doing things that would cause this kind of... Um, these kind of crises. But for whatever reason, the, the, the point of the matter is that people are being left high and dry with the results of these poor decisions that are being made at a higher level. And people are right to want to get justice. The question is, where is all of that energy now? When it wasn't an opportunity to grandstand in front of a burning train or to walk through a city handing out water bottles and things like that, when it comes to a hearing, is there going to be the same outrage of the fact that Norfolk Southern is ducking its responsibility, it seems, and the people of East Palestine are now left without a chance? Yeah, why weren't there any, any representatives of the organization of the company at the hearing? They don't even have to attend? 
We would drag. We keep dragging. Uh, you know, every time there's a problem with a tech company, they drag the the, the CEO or some representative <laughs> yeah. in. They can't be bothered to uh, disturb these people who actually you know crashed a train and had a giant black cloud of death swirling over this town. Yeah, it it it, it is disturbing. Um, I, I I'm very curious. I, I thought this was potentially going to be more of a political. Right. issue. Um, and it's difficult to say, right? Like, I, I don't want these people to be political pawns, but to the extent that some conservatives were willing to make this yeah. their mascot, you know, make this their issue, it seemed to help the people Buttigieg of East Palestine. boondoggle. Exactly. Like, I, if, if, if Buttigieg has to go down so that the people of East Palestine get, you know, get, get the, the services they need, God bless him. If if Trump gets a little bit of shine, but it brings attention to East Palestine, I don't care. Um, but it now seems like everybody has abandoned them, and maybe that'll change as electoral politics heats up. The news cycle is very brutal, very harsh. People, I mean, the national news. I mean, we're still covering it, um, but uh, it's that this this always happens. But right? this this is exactly why. This is exactly why. Lobbyists are successful. Yeah. This is exactly why we're in a situation where we've had brake technology that could prevent the thousand, some of the thousand derailments that happen every year from happening, but we don't have it implemented. It's, it's not just an attention span issue from the media. It's an accountability issue from elected politicians. Because, again, we saw the power that came from politicians trying to make this a political issue for them, and it was useful. And now it doesn't even seem like that is something that people are, are that invested in. So we'll continue to care, uh, cover this story. I hope to have some folks from Status Quo back to update us about what's going on on the ground going forward. That'd be wonderful. We'll have more Rising right after this. Senator Bernie Sanders grilled Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz on Capitol Hill today. Let's watch. Have you ever threatened, coerced, or intimidated a worker for supporting a union? I've had conversations that could have been interpreted in a different way than I intended. That's up to the person who received the information that I spoke to him about. Were you informed of or involved in the decision to withhold benefits from Starbucks workers in unionized stores, including higher pay and faster sick time accrual. My understanding, when we created the benefits in May, one month after I returned as CEO, my understanding was under the law, we did not have the unilateral right to provide those benefits to employees who were interested in joining a union. Am I hearing you say that you were involved in the decision to hold benefits from Starbucks workers in unionized stores? Is that what I'm hearing? It was my understanding that we could not provide those benefits under the law. So that's Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz uh, declining to answer directly the question about his involvement in these uh, labor violations uh, that Starbucks has already uh, been found guilty of. Uh, a labor judge found that Starbucks violated workers' rights um, just, I believe, a, a, earlier this month. It's still March, right? Earlier this month, uh, it was re uh, ordered to reopen uh, a number of stores and reinstate people who had been fired because of their union activity. What do you make of that exchange? Uh, I mean, he's not doing a very good job <laughs> that exchange. Uh, obviously, that was a uh, uh, you know, when he says, well, I could, I had some conversations with union people that, you know, somebody could have taken it the wrong way. Um, I mean, I don't know how broadly these kinds of anti-union 
uh, th these kinds of pro-union statutes are written, whereas that infringes they're, on they're not, the ability They're to not written that broadly uh, or that, you know, I and there's been so much, there's been so much um, undermining of labor law over the last few decades that it has become increasingly difficult for workers to use their right in the market to withhold their labor and get concessions um, for quality of work and, and other kinds of asks. Uh, over time. And so this is really a kind of an unprecedented move. The fact that there has, has been such a, um, a spree of union activity over the course of the last year or two mm -hmm. in a number of sectors, but in particular in the service industry sectors, um, there's been a number of other coffee chains. Uh, Colectivo Coffee saw some stores unionize over the course of the last few years. It's been really exciting for the labor movement to see resurgence after years of decline. And it has been interesting. Howard Schultz was not willing to come and testify until he was threatened with subpoena. This has been a long time coming. And as we're going to see in a clip that we're going to play in a second, there's, I think, more than a little antagonism between him and Bernie Sanders uh, over his particular role and the way that he has become a figurehead for this growing union movement, growing workers' movement, in opposition to uh, the billionaire classes. Let's take a look. This, this moniker billionaire, let's just get, get at that, okay? I grew up in federally subsidized housing. Let me finish. I grew up in federally subsidized housing. My parents never owned a home. I came from nothing. I thought my entire life was based on the achievement of the American dream. Yes, I have billions of dollars. I earned it. No one gave it to me. And I've shared it constantly with the people of Starbucks. And so anyone who keeps labeling this billionaire thing is- Mr. Schultz, I, I don't mean to cut you off. We have time limits here and you have well, the I opportunity. Think, I, I'm not cutting no, you it's, off. It's your, it's your moniker constantly. It's unfair. No, it is I not. Heard, you have had more time. Well, I've been generous with the time. Yeah, I'm but, sorry. But Mr. Chairman- We have a room yeah. full of people. Yeah. We have a panel to go after you. Fine, You're not the fine. only person testifying. Okay. This. So, so Schultz, uh, just by the way, a little bit on his biography. So he bought uh, the company. He bought Starbucks for $3.8 million in uh, 1987. Uh, served as his CEO, uh, served as the CEO several times, stepped down, came back. So he has, I believe, recently, again, stepped down. He stepped down this month. So he will no longer be the CEO of Starbucks. Um, but yes, so, he was the owner, made billions mm -hmm. of dollars as Starbucks Grew so massively. he's worth a little over $4 billion. Is it unfair to call a billionaire a billionaire? Well, I mean, I think what he's getting at there is that he's being, like, he feels that he's being stigmatized Indeed. for his wealth, and he's a self-made man, and good for him. I is mean, he I being stigmatized for his wealth, the... or is he being accurately described as a billionaire? To be clear, he's in, indulging in some pretty identitarian-style uh, politics. Back in 2019, he gave an interview in which he said, please don't call me a billionaire. I would prefer to be d called... Uh, people of means or people of wealth is the term that Maybe he would prefer. Maybe he's making fun of the identity. He wasn't. He was being completely there. dead ass. Excuse me, dead, dead serious. But <laughs> <laughs> your uh, feelings hang out here. No, I mean, this. Yeah. I remember this at the time. He was also, I think, upset. This was in the middle of the primary campaign. Bernie Sanders was talking about millionaires and billionaires, pointing out that there had been this incredible growth in the population of billionaires, and really explaining to folks what it means to have a billion dollars. It's really hard to conceptualize. You know, a million seconds is 12 days, okay? A billion seconds is 31 years. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. Okay. I mean, and, and good so for him. He built up a company that people like, a product... Well, People appreciate. <laughs> Robbie, the reason that he's testifying right now is because he's being accused of exploiting the his workers to 
withdraw profit from their labor and accrue it to himself instead of paying them fair salaries, giving them time off, and in fact, breaking the law to fire them and shut down stores when people try to use their economic right in a free market system to say, I'm not going to work for you unless you pay us what we're owed. I mean, they can exercise their rights in that system to not work at Starbucks. I've exercised my right to never... <laughs> shop at Starbucks, procure coffee from Starbucks because it's so goddamn expensive. I don't know why anyone likes it. But, but the, the issue is that he is violating the law and violating the rights that they have as laborers to organize and demand more. And to, he, he is able to profit and we get all of those billions of dollars in part because of that ability to do so. He didn't, as one person sitting in a room, work hard, you know, a billion dollars, four billion dollars worth of hardness compared to all of the people who have been serving up crafting coffee, I mean, you make, you, cleaning the stores, and doing all those kinds of things. What you owe is, it's, that's a tautology, right? You're paid what you make. Well, no. The whole point of labor action is that workers have the ability in a market to withhold their labor and really see what the, how their labor is valued. Sure. And if Howard Schultz but is violating... But if it was a true market, they could be fired minute. for doing that. If they have artificial... Well, if it was a, if government it was a true market, protections you, against if that. it were a true market, you wouldn't have the coercive ability of these um, uh, CEOs to come together and uh, and basically form these monopolies where they can ha control the workforce, control pricing, and the whole point of why we have labor laws to cr try to recreate some balance so that there's genuine market ability for people to be able to do things like this. If you're a worker and you have to feed your family and keep your roof over their head, obviously you're going to be in a much weaker bargaining position than a literal billionaire. I'm sorry I don't mean to offend or use any slurs or use a word that's apparently on the new list of things you can't say according to, to woke star Howard Schultz, but he is in fact a billionaire. And the whole point of this is that if I'm facing hunger or eviction, of course I'm going to do whatever, I'm going to, I'm going to take whatever Howard Schultz is willing to pay me. The whole point of labor law is to give workers the power to actually be paid what they are actually worth. And he is now being accused of, and has been, um, found to have, at least in some instances, his company has been found, at least in some instances, to have violated the law in this process. So, you know, weigh in. Do you think it's a slur to call a billionaire, someone who has $4 billion, a, a billionaire? And given this wasn't even a conversation about taxing his wealth or anything like that, he just seems to be sensitive about the idea of his wealth being described uh, accurately. Yeah. Let us know what you think. Tomorrow on Rising, Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis will discuss the confrontation that killed a U.S. military contractor in Syria. Don't want to miss that. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. For those of you who prefer to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. We will not be getting Starbucks coffee today. You in union solidarity. Me, because I think it's overpriced. Yeah, also I just uh, bought a mocha pot, so I'm pretty excited about my home brew oh, these nice, days. Nice, nice. Try that out. See you, see you all tomorrow.